Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. California snowpack was off to an impressive start this winter after a series of storms just pummeled the state. And after several dry weeks, a round of unusually cold storms have dumped even more snow. Yosemite National Park is closed with no ETA for reopening after park officials say snow was up to 15 feet deep in some areas. The Sierra has also experienced blizzard conditions prompting the temporary closure of several Tahoe ski resorts, as well as creating dangerous driving conditions. Although much of Northern California is getting a little bit of a break today, I did a couple skips this morning to my car. Temperatures remain pretty chilly, and even more snow is forecasted in the Sierra this weekend. On Friday, we'll get an update on the state's snowpack from state water managers at Department of Water Resources. But in the meantime, we're going to head up to Donner Summit, get a check-in with Andrew Schwartz, scientists at the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab, which has been recording some pretty impressive snow totals this winter. Andrew, welcome back. Thanks for having me on, Vicki. Always a pleasure. I've been following your updates on Twitter and seeing the encroaching snowpack outside of that window. I think it's like the kitchen of of where you all are. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we have two windows remaining that are not completely covered on the second floor. One is in our, our kitchen, as you mentioned, that um, realistically, the snowpack's already above. There's just a little sliver carved out by the wind that has allowed it to keep light. And the last one um, that does still have a little bit of room between it and the snow is the one next to my my desk that I'm sitting at right now, which has, I think, a corner that's about uh, eight inches big that's allowing in some natural light for me. <laughs> wow. I mean, that is just in- incredible. You know, what does it look like today? We're going to get into what you you pretty much wrote out over the last week. But but what does it look like up at Donner Summit? You know, right now it's actually really very peaceful. We've had a few flurries this morning. We're getting breaks in the clouds and sunlight starting to come in for the first time in days. Um, and of course, there is plenty of snowfall around. So uh, it's a little bit like a winter wonderland this morning. So on Sunday, you tweeted the Sierra was in for a wild ride this week. You were included in that wild ride into your you're living up there. Did the storms live up to your expectation? Absolutely. You know, um, it's it's always a challenge when I first look at these forecasts and decide whether or not they're going to pan out. And, um, you know, typically we kind of scoff at anything that's more than a week or 10 days into the future for being accurate with a forecast. And so I saw these amazing totals coming up and I went, there's no way. And as we got closer and closer and closer, um, it it actually looked like that was going to happen. And so uh, I think what I ended up saying was six feet to nine feet is what we were expecting. And we got about seven and a half. So right in the middle of it. And um, to say that, that it met expectations, I think, is an understatement. It was some of the wildest conditions I've ever been in. I mean, then how do you keep the lab going and staying safe when you're buried in that much snow? Uh, it it takes a, a lot of painkillers and a lot of back back and arm work shoveling snow, to be honest. Um, you know, the, the lab has been built to withstand these severe conditions, but we do have other infrastructure around here uh, that we need to regularly clear. We have fire exits that we want to keep clear. We have the propane tanks that if they aren't cleared can explode. We had an incident where one exploded in a nearby neighborhood last week. Um, And then we also have, of course, all of our instrumentation that we want to make sure doesn't get weighed down and break either. So it's mostly... Uh, just a lot of snow shoveling in between when we're doing measurements and hoping that we can stay up with it. 
Yeah. You've been recording some extraordinary measurements. I mean, as of Tuesday, um, I on Twitter, I saw that the snow lab was 100 inches. That's more than eight feet above its seasonal snowfall average. I mean, that just sounds impressive. Impressive. What went through your mind when when you actually recorded that number for the first time? It's it, you know, it. I think it was a little bit of disbelief that I had. Um, you know, I came into this position uh, just about two years ago now. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of dry winters and a lot of kind of discussion on whether or not we're going to keep seeing prim- primarily dry winters. And so I kind of went, sat back and I went, oh, man, am I ever going to get the chance to have one of these really big winters? Or or is it going to be sooner or later when it happens? And um, it to see... Uh, us being well over a hundred inches at this point above uh, our seasonal average is, is incredible. And it's kind of a badge of honor too, because now I, I, I know that I can survive the absolute worst of it up here. <laughs> Are you still in what is, what would be described as blizzard conditions? Uh, today? No, they've, they've relaxed a lot. Yesterday uh, was the hardest day I've had at the facility by far. Um, I, uh, have a we have a path that goes from the front door of the facility to where we measure the snow and that's about 50 to 60 yards away and yesterday uh was the first time i've ever taken a misstep where i sink in about five and a half to six feet uh to the point where it was concerning about actually being able to walk out there safely on my snowshoes uh so uh it was absolutely crazy couldn't see anything the wind was howling the snow was so deep and fluffy that i couldn't gain my footing to try to get out there and so luckily i was able to make it out there but i ended up doing the measurement at 640 after setting out to do or excuse me at 440 after setting out to do it at 340 it took me a full hour to go 60 yards in the snow that had come in wow i mean and these systems just feel so much colder are these colder than the storms that compared to the storms that you've experienced up in the lab just earlier this year at the start of the new year absolutely yeah you you hit the the uh, nail head on. You know, we, we've we got uh, these really cold storms that have been rolling through and they're dropping, you know, as, as I'm sure you're probably aware, that light and fluffy, almost champagne powdery type snow instead of what we see with our normal Sierra cement. You know, that's something that we would ordinarily be concerned about if we're getting eight inches or a foot. But the fact that we're getting um, 12 feet of snow over the last week means that we probably don't need to be as concerned about the moisture content of the snow because there's so much of it. Uh, but yet these storms have absolutely been colder. And in general, um, it's been one of the coldest winters that we've had up here. We had the wave of, you know, nine atmospheric rivers. I mean, who's counting, right? In late December and early January. But February was pretty much dry across the state. Do you know, like, what impact, if any, did the dry period have on the snowpack in the Sierra? Realistically, we didn't see much of an impact at all, fortunately. Uh, We did see um, standard snow processes occur. You know, uh, when when you don't get a whole lot of new snow, the existing snow compacts down further and further. So even though the height of the snow got to be a little bit less, we didn't actually see any any melt. We didn't see a whole lot of evaporation. And most of the water content, in fact, I think all of it, for the most part, stayed intact during that dry period. Wow. You know, there is the big D word drought. I mean, how, how much will this snowpack and what we've pretty much experienced this winter help mitigate or, or buffer drought conditions across the state? 
Yeah, that's that's the big question, right? Um, and you know, I think it's it's one that's become increasingly more difficult to answer given how much precipitation that we've had. Uh, right now, we're sitting at 166 percent of our April 1st average statewide. And of course, that April 1st measurement is the most important uh, because that's when our uh, our snowpack is traditionally the deepest. And uh, that's the measurement we use to determine how much water we'll have for the upcoming year. So we're already at 166% of that a month ahead of schedule, which is phenomenal. Um, and in the short term, we've seen terrific reductions uh, in our drought monitor status here in California. Um, that said, I'm going to say something that's probably going to be very unpopular, and that's that we're still not out of the woods with our long-term drought yet. Yes, we have plenty of snow. We've seen plenty of rain, and our reservoirs are filling. But given the severity of the drought that we've been in and how long it's been, uh, it'll likely take a couple of above-average winters at least to resolve it. And um, I, I think that being said, there is reason to celebrate this winter. Uh, we have a terrific snowpack, and it has really reduced our short-term drought conditions and should make an impact on our long-term drought conditions as well. Oh, well, that, that's promising. That's good to hear. You, yesterday, the lab was within, I believe it was six and a half feet of reaching the 2016-2017 winter season snowfall total, which was like just shy of 48 feet. Was that a record? And do you think that the lab will surpass this total at some point this winter? Uh, yeah, absolutely right. As of this morning, uh, we're actually within three and a half feet of that record. So it's likely uh, that we will surpass it sometime soon. Um, I'm not exactly sure when, probably to be honest, in the next week. Um, that 2016-2017 record is one of the top three snowiest mm. years that we've had in the last 30 years. Uh, but with that being said, it's only the ninth snowiest year that we've ever had at the Snow Lab going back to 1946. Our snowiest winter came 1951, 1952, and that clocked in at a very amazing 67.65 feet of snow. So for the last three, 30 years or so, it's looking like we could, uh, you know, really gain a, a record spot in that time frame. But as far as the longer, longer time frame, eh, <laughs> still yet to be seen. What do you do to pass the time when you're not working? Uh, if you had asked me at this time last year, it would be a lot of uh, playing video games and reading books. Lately, uh, since December, uh, I've gotten into watercolor. So I, I enjoy doing some watercolor paintings and I tend to be meticulous. So it takes a lot of time when I do it, fortunately. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love that. You know, given that you're 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 projecting that, you know, you're going to at least reach or surpass that 2016, 2017 winter year and you just got out of blizzard conditions. You got a break today. You know, as we know, down here, people don't necessarily heed warnings of mountain travel because it can be really dangerous and even impassable to go over the summit. I mean, do you have some messaging to give to people when when given that you've been given a front row seat to these unprecedented and extraordinary conditions up at the summit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I will say this. Like I said, yesterday was probably the most intense snowfall and blizzard conditions I've ever seen in my life. Um, and that includes when I used to work, uh, you know, live out in the Great Plains um, and, and do storm chasing and things like that out there. Um, it's it's just not worth it, you know, to try to uh, to try to get to somewhere if you're not already in that spot. You know, the National Weather Service before this blizzard occurred said get to where you need to be by Sunday, because if not, you're not going any further. And that's absolutely the case. 
And not only are the winds and the visibility and the snowfall rates uh, hazardous, but there's been a lot of avalanches occurring up here as well that have been sliding into. There was one um, in, in Palisades that slid into, thankfully, an abandoned building. And and there have been several that uh, the California Highway Patrol and Trucking mentioned uh, might have impacted I-80. So it's not just you being safe on your own and trying to get through bad visibility. There are other circumstances that are outside of your control that can do a lot of harm. So if these big events are happening, get to where you need to be early and do not travel during the storm. Yeah, I had to. I've been up there many a times during whiteout conditions and just like really miserable weather when I-80 was shut down. I had to give some advice to a friend who was in Reno and wanted to travel back on on really a, a terrible, a terrible day to do so. They ended up staying an extra night. And I've talked to some photojournalists who've been up there, covered Donner Summit and these conditions for over 20 plus years. And they were telling me that this recent system of storms have been some of the worst that they've experienced, you know, just with with which is how extraordinary and, and really miserable those conditions are so and and you're living right through it Andrew so if you kind of had a crystal ball you don't or maybe a snow globe perhaps what does the next few weeks what do you think it'll look like in terms of snowfall well uh if I have my snow globe out in front of me and here on my desk I would say that we're gonna pick up with our snowfall again this Saturday um, and it's looking like we will be in store for many more feet in the upcoming weeks. Um, to what extent and, and what specific number, I'm not sure. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, it looks like we're going to be getting another four to six feet over the next week and a half at least. Could be upwards of 10 feet over the next two weeks. Um, but of course, the the forecast tends to move around a little bit as as time goes on. So all I'll say is there's plenty more snow in, in the future. Andrew Schwartz is the lead scientist at the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab. Thank you for always making time for us, Andrew. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on again. And Andrew is providing us an update on California's impressive snowpack. Up next, a plant fossil discovered in Placer County decades ago has recently helped close a significant gap in the fossil record. The researchers from Sierra College and University of Kansas join us to share this remarkable story tens of millions of years in the making. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. 
I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. More than three decades ago, construction workers unearthed something unusual while building new homes in Granite Bay. They discovered a fossilized plant buried for literally eons. The ancient plant was collected by researchers at Sierra College and preserved in its Natural History Museum in Rockland. And there it sat really for decades, and only recently has its scientific significance been realized. A curious professor from the University of Kansas took a closer look at this fossil and after careful examination released a study suggesting that this discovery has helped close a critical gap in the fossil record. It reveals the ancestors of an incredibly diverse family of flowering plants that we all enjoy today that includes close relatives of coffee and potatoes which evolved during the last days of the dinosaurs. I sat down with Richard Hilton, professor of earth sciences at Sierra College, and Brian Atkinson, assistant professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Kansas, about the fascinating story of this fossil tens of millions of years in the making. So I want to get a little 101 on each of you. Uh, Why did each of you pursue careers in paleobotany and earth sciences? Professor Hilton, I'll start with you. Well, I started out to be a biologist, but uh, ended up changing in my uh, junior year uh, to geology. And then uh, it's led me ultimately to paleontology, the study of life on Earth in the past. Mm. And how about you, Professor Atkinson? Great question. So I started out um, in undergraduate um, college as a plant biology major. And... Um, paleobotany was not on my radar until much later in my college career, and I saw a talk given by um, a paleobotanist about the, his name is Gar Rothwell, is Gar Rothwell, he's still around, and he gave a talk about how fossil plants can inform understanding of how plants evolved in time, and it made so much since to me, I um, asked if I can do a research project with them, and it's it was a wrap after that, so... And, and the rest is, uh, pun intended, history, right? <laughs> Taking a yes. look back and, and now leading to this mm-hmm. moment now. So, Professor Hilton, you're part of a discovery that was really like tens of millions of years in the making. So let's take that baby step back in time to the 1990s. What were the sequence of events that led to this fossil discovery and how you ultimately became involved? Well, I was teaching at Sierra College at the time and uh, with the Sierra College Natural History Museum. And I got a phone call from a local fireman by, by the name of Pat Antuzzi. And he said he'd found what he thought was a dinosaur bone. And I'm going, yeah, right. <laughs> no dinosaurs around here. Anyway, uh, I went to see him. And he pulled out this fossil. And it was a bone. And it was from the Chico Formation, which puts it in the Mesozoic, the time of dinosaurs. And he said, I think it's a dinosaur. And I said to him, I I think you're right, but I can't prove it. So I contacted Berkeley, a guy named Greg Erickson. He did uh, uh, some science on it, and uh, he agreed that it was a dinosaur. And not only a dinosaur, but a young dinosaur. So we started looking, and uh, they were doing houses at the time and digging deep deep ditches uh, for the piping and so forth, the storm drains. And coming out of these ditches was all kinds of fossils uh, from, well, from the ocean. It was an ocean setting, but we were also getting fossils from the land, uh, both plants and animals. I mean, you're talking that this was, at that time, an ocean setting. So 
kind of take us back to that time when this when this fossil was alive. What, what would we see if we took a walk around this landscape, which is now a largely suburb area in the foothills, like 70, 80 million years ago? 70, 80 million years ago, the original Sierra Nevada was much bigger than the one we have today and uh, extended far to the east and was capped by volcanoes. What was happening in the Mesozoic time of the dinosaurs is Pangaea was breaking up, the supercontinent. And this is about plate tectonics, the fact that the crust of the earth moves around in, in plates. And the Americas were moving away from Europe and Africa and opening Atlantic Ocean. And that was closing the Pacific Ocean. By 82 million years ago, that original mountain range had eroded away. You know, miles of rock had eroded away and was deposited offshore in the valley here. And the ocean probably went as far east as maybe Colfax Wow! at the time. And that's like a, you know, on a good day, like a, a two hour, little over two hour drive from from what is the ocean now, like in the Bay Area. That's oh, incredible. Yeah, yeah e- easily two hours. So there was no coast range. There was just, you know, a continental shelf where most of these fossils are being deposited. Wow. Well, OK. So now, Professor Atkinson, that brings me to you because you're based in Kansas. When did you come into the picture to, to really understand the significance of this fossil decades later? Uh, great question, Vicki. So this all kind of goes back um, much of my uh, PhD work when I was a student in grad school involved this, um, collecting and describing um, Cretaceous plants, specifically flowering ones from Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. And by Cretaceous, I mean anywhere between 145 to 66 million years ago. So um, this is like the last hurrah of the dinosaurs. And um, I be, as I was collecting all these fossils, plant fossils, I began to like understand like the western coast of North America might be this really special place for plant diversity during this time period. And so as I started my job here in Kansas, the University of Kansas, I wanted to learn more by looking at different, basically, localities or fossil deposits along the West Coast. And this region is actually surprisingly undersampled or undercollected for this interval of time, for plants, that is. So um, I figured the more that we collect here, the more we can learn about plant diversity and evolution during the Cretaceous. So I've been kind of, I was, I was kind of working uh, with some people at the Natural History Museum in LA County and asking them if they know any potential localities elsewhere in California. Somebody had told me to get in touch with um, a professor at Chico State, Russell Shapiro, who told me then to get in contact with Richard Hilton, who had collected all these fossil plants from Granite Bay. And so I did, and Richard got me into contact with folks at Sierra College Museum of Natural History. And from there, they showed me some of the collections that Richard and Patrick had made in the 1990s. And, you know, I was expecting to see some cool stuff. And then when they pulled some drawers out, I was blown away. It was some of like the best Cretaceous plant material that I've ever seen. It's like the fruits and seeds that were in there are three-dimensionally preserved, um, sometimes down to the cellular level. And it's like they were just dropped like yesterday. So it's like exceptional preservation. And I was 
just I will forever remain grateful for Richard and Patrick for collecting that material. We well, had a ball doing that. <laughs> I, can Im- I, I bet you did. Yeah. I can imagine. I mean, Professor Hilton, did you were you expecting that call from another professor, let alone, you know, in another state somewhere else in the country about something that you preserved and and, and partly discovered decades ago? Yeah, I mean, when I, when we were finding these fossils, I was bringing them to attention to various other professionals that knew that particular subject, but nothing came of it. So I was thrilled. I was really thrilled when Brian wanted to look at these things, and uh, I'm hoping he's going to uh, have some more publications on some of the things we've found. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> So, Professor Atkinson, you were very impressed by what you discovered uh, at Sierra College, and you, in your wheelhouse, is, is paleobotany. Um, I'm just curious, why is this fossil so significant, and how does it help fill in the gaps in the fossil record? Yeah, that's a great question, Vicky. So, what um, this particular fossil is called. Paleophytocrine chicoensis, um, chicoensis being named after the Chico formation from where it came from. And paleo, the genus Paleophytocrine belongs to this family called um, Icassinaceae, which today is typically only found in the tropics. Icassinaceae is part of this really diverse group of plants called the Lamiates. And by diverse, I mean lots of species. We're talking about 40,000 species of flowering plants that include some of the crops that our um, livelihoods and economy depend on, like coffee, potatoes, tomatoes, those sorts of things. And that diverse group of Lamiates um, really doesn't have a fossil record in the Cretaceous period prior to my work, at least solid evidence. And I just felt like they had to be around. And it It's been taking me about seven years to find this. And so now we have kind of like this missing piece of the puzzle. There's still a lot more work to do, but this was a really critical step forward. And it was quite validating, too. I was like, has to be there. Yeah, I can imagine. And seven years is a long time for an individual. But in the context of this conversation, it's just like not even a blink of of, of an eye. You know, so you brought up some crops that we eat today. And so what is the connection to the vegetables and the roots and and the fruits that we eat today to the fossil discovery? Great question. So um, Icassinaceae, that family, um, is closely related to those crops relative to other groups of flowering plants that we know of. And so this close relationship is broader within this group of plants called the Lamiads. So to understand basically how the Lamiads became so diverse and like how their evolution led to things like potatoes and tomatoes, we kind of need to understand when they diversified or when this broader group diversified. And then we can start to piece together other biological environmental events that led to the diversification of some of the plants that we're more familiar with today. It's just crazy to think about how, I mean, we know what happened to the dinosaurs, that there are periods that can just wipe out species. But yet, you know, this plant species that was essentially fossilized, you know, we can Mm -hmm. still see it in some respect millennia eons later. I mean, that's just crazy to think about. (laughs) Yeah, plants are pretty tough. Like they fare pretty well um, when it comes to mass extinction events. Um, And that's partly due to like how they live, like seeds are long lasting and so forth. So like if you just wait a little while, they'll come back. And one other aspect I want to put about this fossil is that 
Um, Paleophytocrine belongs to this smaller group of um, acacinaceae plants called phytocrinae. And those are those form vine, like woody vines in tropical forests. So, Professor Hilton, was this a rainforest at some time? Well, some of the fossils that we found were included uh, tree ferns. We have a, a trunk of a tree fern that we found uh, and other fern fronds. We found cycads. Uh, you may know them as sago palms. Several conifers, uh, including the araucaria tree that grows today in the southern hemisphere. And so I took a trip to Chile to go to the Araucaria forest just to see what it would be like. There's early redwoods, there's false cypress, lots of flowering plants. Uh, so we already had a pretty good idea that this forest was lush. Uh, but now we've got this tropical vine, and I'm thinking, yeah, this probably was a, a rainforest. Mm -hmm. So that, he's really expanding on our knowledge there. Yeah, that's incredible. Professor Atkinson, you had the honor of naming this fossilized plant. What goes into naming a fossil? This is part of the part I like the least is having to come up with a name, although I do acknowledge names are important because I'm not that creative. I'm not even going to try to say it, so you can say it's it. It's okay. It's okay. So <laughs> paleophytocrine, that name has already been established since like the 1930s. Um, this, what goes into like the species name is usually something descriptive about that organism, whether it's the geography where it's found or like something that's noticeable um, about it, like if it had wings or if it had a bunch of holes or if it's big, small, that sort of thing. And sometimes organisms are named after people as well that made important contributions to the field or um, were meaningful to the person who's describing the species. Um, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, I would like to get a little bit more creative with my names, but I describe a lot of different species and sometimes you just gotta go with the path of least resistance. So the la the latter part has Chico in it, and that goes back to the Chico formation that you were talking about, Professor Hilton. How large of an area are we talking about? Uh, Chico formation is kind of intermittent. Uh, along the east side of the valley from, oh, about Stockton or a little farther south, uh, all the way up to Red Bluff and, and Redding. Um, and it's full of fossils. I mean, we find uh, lots of invertebrates, bivalves, uh, clams and oysters, uh, gastropods, the snails. We find sea urchins, starfish, crinoids. These are related to sea urchins that live on a stem. They're animals. But lots of vertebrates as well. Uh, there's been several types of shark and other fish. We have a mosasaur called Cladastes, which we found right here in Granite Bay. This is a seagoing varanded lizard, so related to the Komodo dragon. Three types of marine turtles uh, and the one dinosaur. Uh, in other areas of the Chico Formation, uh, there have been pterosaur remains found and birds. And one mammal. Uh, the mammals were evolving uh, in the Mesozoic along with these plants. You know, how has this fossil, this recent one, helped shape what you teach in the classroom, Professor Hilton? It's pretty cool. You know, it got a lot of interest from the surrounding community. Well, I mainly do field classes now. But uh, field classes in the past, we used to go to Montana and Wyoming and Arizona uh, we would have dinosaur digs. Uh, 
So it's really neat in a community college to get students out in the field, and it changes their lives and their their outlook of uh, the history, the deep history of our planet. Yeah, and it could be right under our feet. We don't even have to travel that far, right? Uh, Professor Atkinson, I imagine this is just the beginning for you. I mean, you mentioned that this part of the West is is largely undiscovered. Where is this going to take your research? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I had planned um, to work on the West Coast, um, especially California, for for a long time. And um, yeah, it's only just beginning, and there's... um, just I'm totally stoked by what I've seen so far and what I'll be able to work on in the near term and long term. Yeah, and that stokeness is just like created ripple effects for for students of Professor Hilton, but also the general public because the public can see this fossil, right, at the Sierra College Natural History Museum in Rockland? I'm not sure that one's on display. It's probably in a drawer, but the museum does have a myriad of fossils to look at. It's kind of unknown. People don't really realize it's there. But you can go in there six days a week from 8 in the morning till 10 at night, and it's a marvelous museum. What goes into preserving a fossil? I mean, you took part in this in the 90s for, for the fossil we're talking about today. Well, it depends on the fossils. You know, some some you just collect and keep them dry and, you know, glue things back together. Uh, but other fossils, you know, when we go out and collect, we've collected... Uh, two triceratops skulls, and, you know, they don't come out of the rock just whole. I mean, I had a triceratops skull on my kitchen counter for two years. That's the first uh, time I've ever heard that. Assembling all the pieces together to finally get it good enough for display purposes. You know, I've been working on some fossils down here at Ione, and we just did a jaw, for example, of a four-tusked elephant, a gomphothere. And you have to pedestal all around the fossil, dig down, and then it's burlap and plaster uh, on the top. And then you dig under it, and then eventually you dig under it far enough that you can break it off. And you so you bring the whole fossil with the rock. And then once you get it in the lab, it's the slow, steady, you know, exhuming of this fossil and, you know, impregnating it with... uh, chemicals that will preserve it sometimes. Uh, but that's that's a lot of work. So some of them you just bring to the museum, they're already ready to go. Some of them you spend years and everything in between. A lot of work, but lot of work, I also but think, I was, yeah. I was just going to say, it still seems like a lot of fun for you. Yeah, we have these giant jigsaw three-dimensional puzzles, you know, that we put together. It's a, It's a whole lot of fun. I think that may be the first and only time I'll have someone tell me that they had a triceratops skull on their <laughs> in their home on their table. Uh, Brian, I want to end with you. I mean, dinosaur bones, skeletons, as we we're talking about, I mean, they're always a big hit when you go to natural history museums. But why do you believe plant fossils are fascinating and how do they help us better understand prehistoric life on Earth? I'll begin with that dinosaurs didn't exist in a vacuum. Um, They obviously were major components of environments, but if you look outside your window for most places in the world, or a lot of places in the world, you'll see that, depending on time of year, I guess, um, that's covered in green. And in fact, like our lives depend on plants. Um, There's no question about it. And so basically how plants evolved in time, how they diversified, how they changed morphologically, or how their features change is really important in tying together like how plants co-evolved with their environment, um, with other animals and so forth. 
So um, that is kind of one reason why I do what I do is to better understand like how these organisms came to be. Um, specifically, these organisms, our livelihoods depend on and our food depends on, our culture depends on. Um, I think that's a major part of like knowing where we where we belong on this planet. Professor Hilton, how about you? Yeah, well, you're, you're looking at uh, a paleo environment here. You're looking at the diversity of all the life. And what's nice about the Granite Bay fossils is we had uh, fossils from the land. So looking at all the plants and uh, looking at some of the animals, uh, you get an idea of the diversity that's going on. You can start to form a picture. I, I kind of think of it as looking through the, a keyhole to the past. You've only got the keyhole, and you just hope that that keyhole gets a little larger and you discover more fossils to make it uh, uh, even more diverse and interesting. But you, you're looking at the past. It's incredible. Professors Hilton and Atkinson, thank you for the time and the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. That is Richard Hilton, professor of Earth Sciences at Sierra College, and Brian Atkinson, assistant professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Kansas, who shared the fascinating story of a Granite Bay fossil and how it helped close a significant gap in the fossil record. Still ahead, Habitat for Humanity is creating homeownership opportunities for lower-income households in both Sacramento and Yolo counties. The nonprofit joins us about its latest round of applications, which opens up today. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Real estate prices may be dropping a bit in Sacramento, but being able to afford a home is just still out of reach for so many households. According to Redfin, home prices in Sacramento have dropped slightly to a median price just shy of $450,000. But according to the latest census, the average household income in the county is roughly $75,000 a year, which for many is less than what is needed for both a home 
and financial stability. Habitat for Humanity has long helped bridge that costly gap, helping lower-income households get into ownership. The nonprofit's Greater Sacramento chapter has opened applications for its latest round of homeownership opportunities for those looking to live in Sacramento and Yolo counties. Joining us to walk through the process is Shannon Stein, Chief Operating Officer for Habitat of Humanity, Greater Sacramento. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is a topic that can be very discouraging and just emotionally taxing for a lot of people. Let's start off with the origin story for for this chapter of Habitat for Humanity. It was established in 1985. Yes, we are uh, in our 38th year and we have been building and revitalizing and repairing homes in the greater Sacramento area. Uh, Throughout that time, we took over the Yolo County affiliate in 2015 um, and we currently manage over um, 100 different mortgages. We are both the lender as well as the builder um, and the financial educator as well as the neighborhood revitalizers. So we do. We wear a lot of hats at Habitat. Um, and we have built over 170 homes in those 38 years. Wow. And you also have expanded in recent years to home repair as well. Absolutely. Home repair and home preservation is an incredibly important part about preserving our affordable housing stock, keeping people in their already affordable homes, particularly seniors, veterans, disabled homeowners, and homeowners who are living on fixed or um, lower incomes who don't necessarily have the expendable funds to be able to address such high-cost repairs as uh, roof repairs or replacing an HVAC unit or uh, dealing with dry rot or other home repair issues that might potentially eventually uh, result in code violations and or displacement. You know, how has the need and the challenges for Habitat for Humanity grown over, you know, the more than 30 years that you've been around in our area? I mean, we're talking about an area that has grown so much in recent years and affording a home uh, for purchase is just out of reach for a lot of people. It is, unfortunately. And I think COVID really laid that bare for all of us to see. And um, never and in our times have we ever seen a time where having a safe place to call home was so important. And um, if there's any silver lining that has come out of the last three years is that we've seen a much greater awareness publicly and at every level of government about how important not only having a place to call home, having either an affordable rental or other place with a roof over your head, but how important home ownership is within that entire spectrum um, of affordable housing and of housing in general in our communities. So we've seen a significant shift in what we're doing and the amount of people that we're serving particularly in the last three years. Um, We are at Habitat for Humanity of Greater Sacramento scaled to basically triple in production. Um, And we are are hiring more uh, more people to our team. We are bringing in more construction professionals. We have more volunteers working with us than ever before. Um, And we are currently building an uh, 18-home community, which is a partnership with Mutual Housing, where they'll actually have 108 affordable rental units on the on the property, we'll have 18 um, affordable long-term single-family ownership opportunities. And so uh, really looking at how we can address the need in kind of a multifaceted way and show that there are so many different ways that if we work together, we can address this issue and provide not only stable housing in general, but provide stable housing at every end of that spectrum to really hopefully all 
also break down the historical inequities that exist in um, keeping people out of home ownership. So we're really trying to break down those barriers. So you're expected to triple, uh, and you've already helped build more than 100 homes in in our area between Sacramento and Yolo counties, in addition to, to home repairs as well. Once someone is accepted into this program, how does how does the process work? So it's a very competitive process. So right now we'll be accepting um, applications for 13 properties. And we expect we'll probably receive somewhere in the 300 to 400 range of completed applications. Um, on an average basis right now, we're seeing somewhere between 6,000 to 8,000 inquiries on an annual basis about housing and home repairs. Um, and so our home ownership application is a traditional mortgage application. You first and foremost must qualify for Habitat for Humanity's financial qualifications as a, um, as a mortgage holder. So you do have to have the ability to pay um, a an affordable mortgage steadily over time. Um, that mortgage is no more than 30% of the uh, future homeowner's gross monthly income at the time of purchase. So it, and it stays at that 30% for the principal over the duration of the ownership of the home. So the homeowner actually has the opportunity to project and know exactly what their monthly payment is going to be and to be able to create financial stability, to start to save, to be able to start thinking about college for their kids or future education opportunities for themselves. Um, So that's, uh, I digress slightly, but that's one of the exciting things about the um, ability to pay aspect of our program is that it is not a giveaway. We are working with families who are traditionally kept out of the home ownership market because they don't make enough to be able to qualify for traditional traditional lending. And there's sweat equity as well. Absolutely. So our program requires um, 500 hours of sweat equity. And that means that um, our future homeowners, um, they put in 500 hours of volunteer time building theirs and other Habitat homeowners' homes. And not only does that grieve, give them a connection and a personal sense of um, empowerment that they helped build their own home and they helped build their community, but it also helps them be prepared for the many challenges that come with being a homeowner and just having to fix things and having to address repairs on your own. They are they are given the, a set of skills by the time they are their um, homeowners, by the time they purchase their home. So they're ready to attack those challenges and feel confident that they can do so. You're talking about 13 homes that are possible, but with an application of, you know, three to 400. So the we're talking about a percent, a percentage of acceptance that's probably in you know in the single digit percentile. What are you looking for? So first is. Um the first qualification is just the ability to pay. We we have to qualify that. And as um, as a lender, it's important that we are following very strict qualifications in regards to equity in our selection process. So we actually bring in um, banking partners who are mortgage lender certified to go through the financial application independent of our, any of our staff. Um, and so we make sure that those applications are reviewed and thoroughly vetted so they fin- the financial qualification is set. At that point, as a special program, lender, we at Habitat and our team are able to take a look at some non-financial qualifications. So um, what is the current homeowner? uh, What does the current home look like that they're living in? Um, Are they overcrowded? Is somebody using a a room that is not intended as a bedroom, as a sleeping quarters? Is somebody sleeping on the couch? Are there multiple um, youth, especially of different gender identities, sharing rooms? Um, Is it a multi-generational family? Are they crowded? Do they have... uh, 
um, leaks in their roof or are there other health and safety issues that might be um, a challenge for the family? Or are they paying too much for their current um, housing? So that's more than 30 percent of their income. And a lot of the families who apply are paying somewhere in, you know, 50 plus if they are current renters or they're living with family. And so they're most definitely overcrowded. And then the third is a willingness to partner. Habitat families share their stories. They are out on the build sites. They have to be willing to commit to that 500 hours of sweat equity. It is not an easy commitment to make. Um, They have to be willing to be present and to speak to volunteers who want to know their story. And so um, that willingness to partner, we determine through a variety of ways. How, How organized is their application when they submit it? Does it have everything based on the checklist when they turned it in? Um, when we call to ask questions about the application or need additional information, are they quick to reply? Um, and so the things like that, just, you know, um, really looking to see is a family ready for this next step? Um, and that is part of that process. And we have lots of people who are involved in the interview process, um, volunteers who are involved, staff members, um, like I mentioned, our banking partners. So there's a lot of opportunity for us to engage with these applicants. And then also, if they're not quite ready to be qualified for homeowners, we can engage with them as well through our homeownership program and connect them with additional financial education, with credit counseling, and with other resources to help them become more eligible, not only to be a Habitat homeowner, but to be a homeowner in general. And if they don't seek out an opportunity through Habitat, there are other affordable homeownership opportunities that we can help connect them with in the community. Given that the applications just opened today, how long does the process typically take? So typically from application opening to notifying the um, families and the homeowner partners that they've been selected is about three months. Um, So this first month, we have open hours at our offices and then also at different uh, locations throughout the community, um, where applicants can come in and meet with a member of our team or a volunteer to make sure they're on the right track with all of the information that they're providing with their application. It's a lot of paperwork for a mortgage application. So we want to make sure this entire month that they have all the coaching that they need. After that, um, we bring in the banking partners. They they start going through all the financial qualification. And as soon as we know we have a financially qualified applicant, then our team starts going into what we call is basically the more subjective review of the application in regards to the current housing status um, and whether or not this family is is willing to do the other partnership requirements of our program. When could they move in? How long does it take to actually to build the home? That's an excellent question. And so usually building the home, our goal is that from the time someone is accepted into our program as a future homeowner partner, that they will be in their Habitat home within about 12 months, if not sooner. Um, And so that gives them ample time to continue to do their sweat equity hours without compromising their ability to, to work and earn income and be part of their family. It also allows our team the opportunity and time to navigate potential challenges that may pop up with permitting or whatever happens. You never know when you're building building new construction. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, But our goal is always less than 12 months. And typically that turnaround time is somewhere in that nine to 10 month range. Shannon, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for sharing um, more about this opportunity with your listeners. A lot of important information. Shannon Stein is the Chief Operating Officer for Habitat for Humanity, Greater Sacramento, discussing home ownership opportunities for lower income households looking to buy in Sacramento and Yolo counties. Applications just opened up today. That is it for Insight Today. You can learn more about our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast. 
If you want to join the conversation, email us at insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producers Nick Dobis and Victor Corral-Martinez with managing editor Arm Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Megan Minata. Insight's technical director is Mark Jones, and our engineer is Chris Feltz. Our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. And I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.